Cosmist, greetings, comrades. Welcome to the new episode of Prolet Cult, the Antifada side project about space, science fiction, the paranormal, and the parapolitical. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of those topics. Uh, we're going to be talking later in the episode about a strike in space that happened in 1973. We're going to be talking about the new space age and opposition to it, and two movies from last year that addressed these themes. One of them is... Star Wars. But before that, I'll be talking to Joseph L. Flatley about his new podcast, The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh. This is a really great serialized investigative show about an apocalypse UFO cult located in Tucson, Arizona on a kind of agricultural commune. And Flatley's done a lot of work talking to ex-members about what this cult is, and we go into a little bit about cults in general. So enjoy that interview, and stay tuned for the end for my audio essay about space, anti-space, science fiction, and Star Wars. Pollution, exploitation, isolation, disparity, symptoms of a society out of control. What if we could live differently? It turns out over 100,000 people already are in eco-villages, communes, and communities of all kinds around the world. How can you find these communities? The answer, the community's directory. We weren't even really looking for something spiritual. We were interested in growing food, natural things, I guess you'd say. Not um, like the spiritual part was just kind of like happened later, but it wasn't why we went there. They claimed that they were also interested in farming, and to some extent they were. um, But now I see that was more of a hook um, you know, or a lure or a trap, I would even say, than what they really care about. Jackie was a victim of the old-fashioned bait-and-switch. Uh, she wanted to join an intentional community, but once she joined, she was hearing it was the end of the world, she might die if she strayed too far from the community, and you just have to wonder why she didn't flee at that point. They do a really good job of, you know, the the whole process. I mean, it's like down to a science of how they love bomb you and like you're such an important person. It's not, I mean, yes, we said he's the most important, but you're also important and you can get even more important if you, you know, stay there and keep doing things the way you're supposed to do. If you keep along with the program, you're going to like, when the new world comes, Gabriel will be the emperor, but you'll be like the mayor of a small town. He would say that. That was one of his little speeches. Yeah. Like each one of you here, there's only a hundred of you. Like you'll, you'll be like a mayor of a small town or governor of a state. Or uh, Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about this guy, Gabriel of Urantia and your investigation into his, uh, let's say, uh, New Age religion. Oh, sure thing. And uh, thanks for having me on, Andy. Um, the uh, Yeah, my show is called The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh, and The So-Called Prophet is a man named Gabriel. He goes by many names. The uh, Planetary Prince, Talius Van, Gabriel of Urantia. But um, a lot of people here in Pittsburgh where I live know him as Tony, Tony Delavan. So he's a... Uh, he was just this like baby boomer kind of failed musician guy. He uh, grew up here in Pittsburgh in the '60s, and you know tried for a while with his like with his R&B band. Tried to like make a name for himself as a musician. Got married, got divorced, got married and divorced again. And um, you know 
life his his life path that he was on in a more uh, more traditional way trying to you know be successful was not working so he moved to Arizona changed his name to Gabriel and now he has like two wives and a radio station that just plays his music and a hundred followers living in a compound in uh, Tumacocri which is a a uh, unincorporated town just uh, just north of the Mexico border so um I heard about the guy, and my show just kind of tells his story through the through the stories of his ex followers. He won't talk to me, you know. They're not going to go on the record or talk to me. But um, there are definitely enough people that have been through the compound that have interesting stories. So we started uh, January seventh, and we are going for uh, eight episodes. So we're kind of wrapping it up. Yeah, and I, I first discovered uh, your investigation and the podcast through Parallax Views. Uh, shout out to Parallax Views. And it, it seems like you've got a really interesting uh, stack of episodes, including talking to people from the Negative Network, which is the, uh, I guess that would be the the Urantian version of the, the suppressive personalities, like the mm-hmm. ex-cult members or enemies of the cult. And you're talking to them, and that's always really fascinating to me to hear the stories of the people who went through it and got out. Um, But before we talk about that, give us an idea about what this group is about, uh, what Urantia is, and uh, their their worldview or or cosmic view. Sure thing. Uh, It all starts uh, with the Urantia book, which is a really interesting book. It's uh, believers in it believe that it's a revelation from God. Um, Urantia is their name for the planet Earth. And basically, it's a spiritual and philosophical text that kind of appeared out of nowhere in the 1950s. Urantia? I know that can't be right. No, that's not it. I'm looking at it now, Howard. He's saying it's called the the Urantia book. It's an interpretation of how the Earth was created. You read that, Sal? Yeah, I'm reading it. It basically, there was a bunch of guys back in the day, spirits came down, aliens came down, and they explained how the earth was created. Let me ask you something. If you're going to read a book, why would you read up a Bubamites book? Why don't you read a book on history or something that was based in science? This is history. This this is tied into science. This is no Bubameister stuff. Howard, Bubameister? They, they don't even know who wrote it. There's nobody's, they, nobody claims to have written it. Yeah, remember when Klaatu were the Beatles? Yes. I think they wrote it. <laughs> People have looked at the history, and it didn't really come out of nowhere. It came out of a kind of a reading group, a spiritualist reading group in Chicago in the 20s and 30s. But, you know, they won't say specifically who wrote it, or they claim that nobody wrote it, that a sleeping man kind of channeled it and handed it over to them. But what makes them interesting is that uh, it's it's very different than kind of like, you know, your old school religions where you have like a pope at the top. And he's the only person that talks to God. It's 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 very much like a I referred to it. I don't know. This is cheesy, but like kind of like an open religious architecture. Like people who believe in the Arantia book, their only job is to read the Arantia book and talk about the Arantia book with fellow believers in the Arantia book. This Gabriel guy, however, he took the book and he he like turned it into this like weird authoritarian sect where he's he claims to to be the only person that can interpret it. And he's surrounded himself with people that believe this. There's a hundred of them. They live in a compound in the desert. And they're basically waiting for the world to end. Um, They think that when civilization collapses, 
that they're going to be the new leaders. And um, so it's like this weird, like hippy dippy, totally anti-authoritarian book becomes this really heavy authoritarian religion in in the desert of Arizona. So what is the book and, and when do UFOs come into the picture? You know, it's basically like a any kind of mythological fable, but using the technology of the 20s and 30s. So, you know, instead of referring to heaven, they refer to planets and they refer to outer space. So it's like, you know, it's a religion. If you were to invent a religion in the 20th century, it kind of uses, you know, you would use the language of the 20th century. So in that way, it's, you know, kind of reminiscent of everything from Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. you know, to Scientology. Nation of Islam also has a, a UFO or, or alien component to it, but I, I think that kind of right. got buried with time. Uh, but yeah, I, I was always fascinated with Scientology, like how it's uh, it basically replaced the you know Adam and Eve story, the fall from grace, with it looks like nonsense to us now, but it, that was like the sci-fi of the time. Um, that's what kind of was in people's heads. I, I wasn't aware that this book is is older than the cult. Are there other followers of Urantia? Yeah, there definitely are, and and most of them are, um, you know, it, when it came a, came around in the twenties uh, and thirties, and I guess forties in um, mid twentieth century in Chicago, it was really like a kind of a respectable pastime for like upper middle class people that wore suits and you know and believed in spiritualism and got together and talked about philosophy. And if you read the thing, I mean, it's it's a tough read. It's like two thousand pages. But if you like tough it out, you know, a lot of it reads like like weird management texts from like like Ford Corporation, like management texts or something, you know. But they're talking about the hierarchy of ascended beings and, you know, the managers of different planets and stuff. It's like it's a strange like combination of corporate think and the science of the time. Um, now in the sixties, the hippies got a hold of it and cause it was pretty far out. So like people like Jimi Hendrix and, and, uh, Jerry Garcia were really into it. And I guess the actual community, there was kind of a rift between the old guard that were kind of respectable and wore shirts with collars and like the new school hippies that were into it. But, um, to this day, you know, people into new age stuff are also into this book and, you know, people have kind of launched their own movements off the back of it people have had like you know have claimed to be the you know like kind of you know kind of used it to bolster their claims of being like great spiritual leaders but i don't think anybody's taken it as far as this gabriel guy and you know gabriel has continued the teachings of this book and um the Arantians that study his teachings say he's just you know it's contradictory. So there's a lot of infighting between the different, between him and kind of the mainstream Urantia establishment. So how do they interpret the UFO phenomenon? I'm not really aware of like the specifics um, about like, like what they believe the mechanics are. You know, they just talk about like a hierarchy of ascended beings and they talk about them living in outer space and other kind, other planets. Um, there's supposed to be like a thousand inhabited worlds in the universe and, Urantia, yeah, there's thousands, and yeah, Urantia is uh, num- they're all numbered, and Urantia is number six oh six, I believe. Um, 
And then, like, the Arantia book really breaks down, like, how the universe was created and, you know, how the planets were created and the battle between good and evil. Um, I, you know, I think as you die, you're supposed to, like, be reincarnated in higher and higher worlds until you f eventually reach heaven. And then you're in heaven. It's um, all good. And so how, when does the apocalypse come into it? It doesn't. And that's one of the places that um, the Urantia movement and this Gabriel of Urantia guy really, um, you know, kind of come at loggerheads. Uh, the Urantia book says that um, Jesus Christ will return in some, like, long, far-off future. But, it, you know, it says that humanity... It's a pretty hopeful book. It says humanity will get its act together, will all evolve into higher worlds and become like more spiritually perfected. Gabriel just goes for like the worst, like craziest end times apocalypse teachings. Um, I mean, that's really what they're doing. They're sitting, you know, they're sitting in their compound waiting for the end of the world. So that's, that's one point where Urantia book and Gabriel differ, but you know, the uh, doomsday stuff is a time worn uh, cult control tactic. So, Oh, absolutely, and it uh, it keeps people in line because why would you go out and live any other kind of life if Doomsday is right around the corner, it could come any day, and the only way to survive it is by following what the, the prophet says. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, at this point, it's kind of becomes more of a, you know, like I said, psychological control mechanism, like, when you're when you're dealing with cult leaders or charismatic like people in the more authoritarian or abusive end of the spectrum, you know, they're not trying to like actually convey information. They're just trying to scare the heck out of you. So whatever they can say. Yeah, and the, the of course all the other classic aspects of, of cults are there. There's the uh, escalating spiral of commitment. You know, if you do your work well, you get more work to do. And uh, there's the uh, the self-monitoring, the self-policing. Everybody's informing on one another. The proselytization, talking yourself into it as you try to talk other people into it. And, you know, obviously being a UFO cult in the desert, waiting for the end of the world, believing themselves to be the leaders after it, it sounds like a number of cults from the, the late 60s and, and 70s. Uh, this is such a well-worn trope of a cult. Uh, how do you think people fall into it when everything about it just screams cults? Really, the defining characteristic of a destructive cult or one of the main ones is that you don't know all this stuff until you're deep in it. So um, talking to talking to the ex-members, um, it's it's been really interesting because they talk about like a process. You join and you're not a member yet. And everybody else in the community knows that, like, you're on this, they're on this trial basis and they're supposed to be really nice to you. And there's specific people that, you know, are your designated companions. You don't know, but they've been sent to keep an eye on you and to kind of masterfully, if you have doubts, kind of turn them back on you and turn them into, you know, transform them into actual, you know, into belief it's 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 pretty crazy so like you're in this group for like six months and everybody's being great you're getting good food all the negative nellies are being kept away from you and then slowly over time you just you just realize well this place is so great gabriel must be telling the truth because this is so much better than the real world and of course i think 
a large percentage of us are going to even at that point go, this place is weird, I'm going to split. But that's the other point is they don't care about the people that are going to split. They're trying to weed them out. And then after six months of this love bombing and all this attention and this mind control, really, overt or covert persuasion, they, um, they say, all right, it's time to make a decision. You can stay or you can go. If you uh, want to stay, you can, you know, have all these great friends and relationships and you can, you know, survive the end of the world with us. But you just have to give us everything you own. And, um, and once you do that, you're stuck because they've separated you from your family. Um, you don't have any resources if you want to leave. And then, then things get rough. And by that time, it's too late. That's when, like, the really scary, messed up, abusive stuff happens. So six months is actually a pretty long initiation process. A lot of other cults try to work faster um, and try to yeah. really break you down, even over the course of a weekend or over, uh, uh, you know, a one-day session or something. Well, sure, yeah. You talk to some of these people, and it's like, you know, it's some of these other cults, you know, and they're really like, I, um, I was on the beach, and I talked to this guy for an hour and a half, and next thing you know, I'm in the back of a van driving off to a new life. So they really like, yeah, I mean... This group is unique in a lot of ways, and I think you just pointed out one of the main ones. It's it's pretty. It's it's uh it's really interesting. But uh, do they have ambitions of like franchising out like other cults do, or do they just want to have a a certain select group of believers at their compound? You know, so they they wanted to have the goal was to to have Gabriel, the cult leader have his music accepted all over the world and for him to be a famous musician and for this uh, main headquarters that they have in Arizona to be number one in a series of like seven sectors around the world um, and, you know, thousands of followers and it just never took off because it's, you know, wackadoo. But, um, but you know, they definitely had plans and, um, and I think... They've been around since 89, and I think like the last 10 years, 15 years or so, has really been them realizing that it's not going anywhere and that, you know, they're really just holed up kind of. The leader's really just living the good life waiting to die. He's in his 70s now. He's probably not in the best of health. So, you know, it's it's definitely like run its course. But yeah, he had all the... That might be one of the failures of it. You know, he was never as big as Jonestown or even like Synanon had thousands of people all over the country. This is just like kind of the same hundred people, you know, like like every few years, a couple people escape and then a couple more people join. And it's really held held firm at that 100 people since 89. So that that's interesting because it makes it sound a little bit more like Gabriel is a true believer uh, or and not just you know obviously he's got some privileges as the leader uh, maybe people like his music for a change but he's not um, he's not doing the L. Ron Hubbard thing where he's really trying to market this and make himself very very rich and influential. There's always a you know with these people there's always a I know a bit about other groups but then it what I'm about to say is really borne out by kind of my more in-depth look at Gabriel is there's always a combination of the two things. It's always a combination of like con artists, even like when you go to faith healers, a lot of that time, a lot of the times faith healers are 
faking stuff and it's you know in their heads they're thinking well i can really heal people but i need to keep doing crazier and crazier miracles to like attract more followers for jesus so it's kind of like they're running a con on themselves just as much as they're running a con on everybody else and um the cult leader's in a bubble just the same way that his followers are in a bubble and he's got nobody giving him like realistic feedback so if he didn't believe now i I believe that this guy was hearing voices and was taking the voices seriously. There's probably some sort of mental disorder there. And I think he believes his stuff, you know, just as much as anybody else. But do I think he would be L. Ron Hubbard if he could? Definitely. I just don't think he had it, you know, worked it out. His daughter told me an interesting story. She said she was at a flea market in Sedona once and uh, when she was a kid and... um she saw a pile of like Scientology DVDs and she was looking at them and uh, she didn't know what it was. She just knew like she had heard of Scientology and she had heard of L. Ron Hubbard and she knew that people said that L. Ron Hubbard was a terrible person and she knew that people were saying her father was a terrible person. So she was just interested in looking at them and the guy was like, the guy whose flea market it was was just like, take it, you know, I don't, I don't need that stuff. So she like took it home and gave it to her dad and, um, her dad like saw it and got real angry. He's like, you can't have this stuff. Where'd you get that? And took it from her. And then like, she would like go up into his office to say good night to him or whatever. She would like every once in a while, catch him watching Scientology DVDs. So, so it's like these people definitely do the research and they, they, you know, they do the research. They try to figure out how to, how, how other people in their field work the con for sure. But, you know, it's it's I think it's mixed mixed motivations, you know. I'm I think, you know, on one level he'd rather believe that he was the highest spiritually ascended being on the planet. But at the same time, he has to kind of know he's like running a scam. So, what I'm really interested in with uh both my projects uh researching Posadism, which was a a Trotskyite sect uh known for its interest in UFOs. It wasn't exactly a UFO cult, but a lot of its members do call it a cult. And I see a lot of similarities between Marxist-Leninist sects in the 70s and 80s and even today, uh, and the, uh, you know, the the average UFO cult holed up in the desert. Um, but so my interest is uh, kind of reading something political into these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I recall you saying that Gabriel was was interested in intervening in Occupy Wall Street in some way. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, I I really think, I mean, kind of the thing that's fun about this guy is, you know, he has like the whole hippy-dippy new age thing going, and he really seems like he would be just really, you know, passive and lefty and, you know, more communitarian. But it's like, He's, it's a highly controlled group. Everybody is in their section. They they answer to like very specific people. They you know they have they know who's above them in the hierarchy. They know who's below them. They even know like spiritually <laughs> like they all have a ranking of like who's more spiritual than the other. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know he's he's like a weird old conservative boomer um, who just like dresses up in this new age trapping. But at the same time, he's always looking out for um, for something to co-opt, you know, like he 
co-opted the Urantia book. Um, and he has this concept called spiritual lution, which obviously is like spiritual and revolution. And so when Occupy Wall Street happened, he thought, oh yeah, this is what we got to do. This is, um, you know, these people are going to follow us. So they like started their own like mock. They started doing their own like AstroTurf Occupy events in um in Tucson and uh and he came out as like the big champion of the one percent or the ninety nine percent. It was pretty funny, but it was like totally like total like co opted. It was there was definitely no you know, I don't think there was any like belief like real like ideology behind it or anything. Well the the one video I, I saw from him was actually kind of interesting because it uh using imagery of ufos and nuclear war and vague spiritual pretenses you you already know that this stuff is true you just kind of have to let me guide you down the right path i i think there was a lot of people at occupy trying to feel to fill that role um but uh to, to what extent was the group actually present were they just there at in arizona or were they in new york or or, or were they just um, making videos yeah um so uh Gabriel's son Amadon, who is, I believe is uh, set to take over when Gabriel passes, um, he was at Occupy, and um, he actually was involved. And I haven't gone far down this uh, research uh, investigative tributary yet. Um, I think this is going to be season two. He actually was like involved in a class action lawsuit of Occupy against like the the city, the state of New York, or something. Um, so he was there, like mixing it up. You know, there's like. He made a lot of videos there, like, chasing around, like, people on the scene, like, you know, interviewing uh, Abby Martin or something. Um, so he, you know, definitely tried to fit in. But a lot of what this cult does is try to fit in and fail miserably. <laughs> you know, it's like, because they're living on a compound believing that they're, like, the center of the world. And I don't think that it's really very helpful when you then try to go out in the world. You know, if you think the world revolves around you, then when you actually have to go out in the world and like make things happen, it's obvious it's often not the best uh, position to do that from. So like, you know, if they have to go to court over something. They'll like go to court and make asses out of themselves because, you know, they're talking down to the judge and the, you know, and, and stuff. And it's just, it's it's kind of comic in that, and that's in that aspect of it. Well, the the revolutionary sect is often not too different, right? Because uh, even if you're in a group with maybe a hundred, or a, if you talk about like a larger Marxist-Leninist or revolutionary sect, you might have a thousand people. You believe, first of all, that this apocal revolution is coming just around the corner, which is uh, kind of the the same thing as the apocalypse or, or doomsday scenario, or mm -hmm. the the fall of capitalism. Um, and you believe that you're the group that has the correct line on it. And uh, through having that correct line, you'll lead the proletariat in or after the revolution. Um, and as a result, there, there becomes this feeling of alienation from the working class, from the, mm -hmm. the people that you expect to lead in some way. And you just look like weirdos to everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, and that's my kind of having kicked around that scene for a few decades, you know, like that's kind of my criticism of a lot of revolutionary or radical politics or radical, you know, 
activists is that um though i agree with where with the, where they're coming from and i you know support their their aims you know it's that kind of blocking yourself off from the rest of the world or believing when you, when when it comes to the point where you believe that you're separate and above and different than the system as opposed to like kind of accepting the fact that you're part of the system and you're just it's your job to change it or wreck it or whatever you know i think you know there can be a lot of delusion and you know the gabriel story is really just like a hilarious kind of over simplification of that i think in a lot of ways yeah as is posadism which is what i find so fascinating about them is both how cartoonish it is um this this uh guy who believed in nuclear war ufos and marxism but also how kind of common his group was in a way and the fact that he believed in these strange things made it uh, like a, a scapegoat for all the other people that believed the exact same thing. But I also want to talk about another group who uh, probably the most successful UFO cult today, if you exclude Scientology as a UFO cult, uh, the Raelians. Oh, uh, um, yeah. I don't know if you know too much about them, but they also have, uh, they, they intervened in Occupy to some extent. And they have a political vision of change. Um, are you familiar with this at all? You know, I am familiar with them. Like, I remember when they claimed that they cloned a baby, but I don't think they ever produced the baby. Um, you know, in, like, the topless marches, I'm, I support those. Yeah, they um, have these publicity stunts every now uh, every now and again, including World Topless Day, uh, the, the, the cloning thing. Also, they... They believe in reclaiming the swastika. So for a while, they were flying around these planes with banners uh, at New York with a swastika on it, um, saying it's a symbol of love. Uh, but how they recruit is they they claim they have these beautiful women, and they imply that if you join this group, you'll be able to have sex with them in these these cosmic orgies. Yeah, uh, Children of God called that flirty fishing, right? Mm, well. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, it was kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, these hippie Jesus g- girls with acoustic guitars don't look so bad. Speaking of, but, did you know, I just found this out, Joaquin Phoenix grew up in Children of God. Yes, yes. Pretty crazy. I mean, that's like, that's when it's like a little too dark for me. Like the turn that that took, um, that really just goes like, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's rather you're, whether you're uh, talking about Gabriel or what was his name? Moses or something, the Children of God guy, or Jim Jones. I mean, it's like, it's a weird psychological process that's happening to the cult leader that's kind of like playing out. Um, it's it's a uh, interaction between guru and disciple that's, you know, like, you know, like a lot of like psychological stuff can get stirred up. A lot of um, psychological symptoms can be created, like, not because the people have like a, organic brain chemistry problem but just something about that environment and that interaction it's fascinating yeah i think it's a combination of megalomania plus uh i don't know like this belief that you your desire and your creativity like the everything depends on it so you have to Mm -hmm. channel it and part of how you channel it is often especially if you're the a male cult leader is often sexually so right. sex becomes very important. Like uh, even some of the the Fourierist groups that um, these like utopian socialist groups that started little cities all over Europe and the United States. Some of them just evolved into weird sex things, 
And then you get the other side of it where there's like this extreme asceticism with the, the shakers or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but the, so the Raelians, although I don't know too much about their sexual procl proclivities, uh, one of them actually contacted me and I was actually trying to have him on, uh, but he was just a little bit too weird for me to, to really work with. But he yeah. sent me the manifesto. And I don't know if this is the official Raelian manifesto or this is his interpretation of it. Um, but they, they're they basically trying to uh, piggyback on Occupy and this emergent socialist movement and say, yes, we need to overthrow the 1% and we have to replace them with basically this uh, New World Order of Mensa members. Like the most intelligent <laughs> people, the people with the highest IQ are the ones that can vote and everybody else will be happy just following them. And... Um, that, I mean, that's also kind of part of why I didn't want to have him on, because it was just a creepy attitude, but not super yeah. uncommon. I've heard Joe Rogan say things not too dissimilar. Yeah, people really seem to like... Well, Steve Hassan, I'm like... He's, you know, he's a, a cult expert, and um, he's written some interesting stuff, and he his new book is called, like, The Cult of Trump, and it's like... It's like there's some gems in it, but it really... I'm halfway through, and it just reads like... A lot of it is a book report of, like, the lamest liberal, like, attacks on Trump. But seen through the lens of, like, a an actual, like, psychologist who has a background in, like, evolutionary psychology and a background in cults. So there's some interesting stuff. But one of the things is he talked about was, like, you know, our understanding of, like, childhood trauma and abuse and the effects it has on the brain. And he thinks that really, like... Some people are more wired to, like, follow authoritarian leaders. Like, you know, you take two people from completely different backgrounds or completely different, you know, psychological makeups and put them in front of a Gabriel. One person will feel like they've come home and the other person will, you know, run fleeing. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people like Joe Rogan who just feel very comfortable with this, like, really gross social Darwinism that, you know, they probably don't even realize that they're buying into on a conscious level. Well, I think w what he believes is that uh, there are certain things like policy decisions, like uh, like how to make infrastructure work um, and how to distribute resources and such that should just be handled completely apolitically, just by intelligent people, technocrats, more or less. And it's not so different than liberalism, even high liberalism, like Hannah Arendt is often critiqued yeah. for having this position of rejecting uh, social questions in certain aspects. And I kind of see the logic in it, uh, which is that we can't make everything political. We can't have everything be a struggle. Some things just need to, to simply function and work. But, uh, but when that seeds this logic of just elitist meritocracy or uh, something like that, where yeah. there's an intelligentsia running things, then you do get this concept of the vast majority of people just need to be led and controlled. And then you see them wheel out their vi their version of technocracy, like this app in Iowa, yeah, yeah. that just, you know, it's just bullshit. There's just hollow. It doesn't work. It's all built yeah. on fraud. Like one thing I love to hate listen to is Dr. Drew, because it's like, mm. I don't know if you've ever heard. Clearly the man has like no like concept of like power dynamics or... Or the economy, or you know, or you know, the elite. Like he doesn't have like a uh, a framework in which to put his you know his intellect. So he's just like coming up with all these crazy ideas. Like 
you know, it's just like his like weird libertarian streak or whatever. Um, and you know, Joe Rogan like that, they all need to be good socialists. I think that would be a start or good anarchists. Well, Joe Rogan might be on that path. I, I've listened to the last few episodes and he said a lot of things I really agree with, which is very weird because just like, I think this time last year I was horrified by the stuff <laughs> he was saying, but that just goes yeah. to show you that people aren't as set in their beliefs as us weirdos are. Yeah, 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 you're right. And, um, you know, I really, for better or for worse, the majority of my time has been spent kind of like in the conspiracy theory ghetto, <laughs> conspiracy media ghetto. I'm really happy to, to listen to and to talk to people who I disagree with. Like, it's just a disagreement. Like a Joe Rogan. I mean, I have to admit, I've never heard his show um, I've I've seen the clips. I like kind of really proud that I'm like the only person I know that's never heard a show. So I'm gonna like try to stick that out for as long as possible. You don't have but, to uh, hear it. It's, <laughs> the clips are fine. You know, but it's like they're really long, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think what really sticks out to me is there are so many people in any media in the media landscape in the general media atomized media landscape of the internet or whatever that are just not honest about what they believe or or that they even have an agenda and that's really what kills it for me i you know i don't get the impression of like joe rogan being that guy um so yeah i'll you know i'll talk to a guy or listen to a guy who um i'm a you know after i finish this up i'm gonna drive into uh rural central pennsylvania and spend a weekend with a bunch of militia people who are training (laughs) so it's like you know i got i gotta be like you know not not as an enthusiast or as a gun nut, but as a, uh, you know, as a journalist. And, um, you know, you got to be open to other people. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't be too, like, you know, you can't be too rigid in who you'll talk to or not talk to in this business. Oh, absolutely. And I think even a lot of the militia people, uh, a lot of them are just kind of single-issue-minded mm-hmm. people. Like, they just care about guns. And then... Through that, they're susceptible to certain kinds of propaganda. Um, but the idea that they're all white supremacists uh, and that they're all, uh, you know, proto-fascists, I think that's just too simple. I, you know, maybe the majority of them are. I don't know. But I, I just don't think, given what happened in Virginia recently, um, how uh, the, the leadership of, of that movement really tried to exclude white nationalists, mm-hmm. that that's, that's like too easy an explanation for, for that group. Yeah, you know, one of the main, I, I think they're, you know, when you're in rural Pennsylvania, rural Michigan, you have like a certain like kind of, or the liberal bastions of the East Coast or anywhere, you know, you have certain assumptions that you're kind of, you believe from a very early age. And then you kind of like swim around in those assumptions trying to look for like what you're, you know, what you're going to believe within those like you know, within that bracket. And like, you know, the, one of the reasons I'm talking to these militia dudes is because um, the one I've been in contact with, Christian Yingling, he's the uh, leader of the PA Lightfoot Militia. And they are, and he, um, he's like the bad boy of uh, Ross Story. Like if you ever like see a militia story on Ross Story, it's like how he was like the militia leader in Charlottesville and how he's just like raving racist and working with the cops to like like you know stamp out antifa or whatever and it's like i have no idea what's going on there because like 
you know, obviously we know that some crazy bad stuff went down in Charlottesville and that militias were involved and like right, you know, far right racists were involved. But, you know, like where this guy stands and where like the militia movement in Pennsylvania stands aside from like what people doing, you know, it seems to be separate and apart from whatever like hot take people are writing up frantically, um, you know, for Ross story or, you know, the blogs. It's like, I remember when, uh, when Trump used the term coup in a tweet. Um, and then all of a sudden, like all over Twitter, there were just all these like articles about how he used the word coup and it was a code word and the militias were activating. So it's like, you know, and people were freaking out. And so I like started calling people I knew in militias in different part of the country. And, um, they, you know, they didn't know what Twitter was. They didn't know what Trump said. They didn't like particularly like Trump. And it's like, just because t- a, a militia leader tells you something doesn't mean that, like, <laughs> you know, like, you're going to take it at face value. No way. But, um, you know, they weren't, like, somehow this narrative, in this small circumstance, you know, for, like, a 24-hour cycle, this narrative took hold among, like, my lefty Twitter blue check people that I follow. And it's like, I want to see what, the reality is because I don't think they're accurately reflecting reality. Uh, well, well, this is something we'll obviously have to talk about maybe in a future episode because oh, yeah, yeah. uh, we're yeah, a little bit off topic. That. But isn't isn't Christian Yingling one of the people who, at the recent Virginia protest, was pro having some kind of dialogue with the anti-fascists and anarchists who were essentially agreeing with the protests like, against the yeah. gun control legislation? So, um, I first. Uh, I'm going to be meeting him for the first time, but I first spoke to him after Charlottesville. They have been like in contact with and having dinners and like kind of like tentatively like meeting up with, uh, we have redneck revolt here in Pittsburgh and John Brown gun club. They've been in contact for like two years. So it's like, they're not strangers. And you know, um, (laughs) Yingling's Yingling is pretty funny. He's like, I got into the militia stuff because I was listening to Alex Jones a lot. But the more I listened to Alex Jones, I realized he was crazy. And now I want to do something to like support my community. So I started this militia. So it's like he was actually de-radicalized by Alex Jones (laughs) because Alex Jones is so nuts. Um, So I don't really know what's going on there. I, you know, it's like they portray themselves as like every time I talk to them, they were like, oh, we were an eerie, uh, shoveling snow because they had a a blizzard and nobody could get out of their driveways. So, I mean, who knows what's going on? It's just, you know, um, I think it's too important a story to, to be left to people who are like, you know, not really getting in there and doing the reporting. To bring it back to cults and maybe close it out a little bit. Um, I want to, in your, in your research about uh, Gabriel Virantia and, and other cults, do you see anything potentially positive or valuable about the kind of lives that people live in these groups? No. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, they're, like, life in America sucks for most people for different ways. So, like, you know, when you have people who are, Living, you know, living outdoors, doing a lot of farming, learning like skills with their hands. They're not uh, not getting fat. I don't think I saw one fat, you know, Gabriel guy. Um, you know, they'll 
you know, I mean, there's benefits to it, you know, um, living off the land, you know, fresh air, all that stuff. But I mean, that's al- that's almost an accident. Like, really, my concern is you have people who were born into this, so they're gonna like get out of high school with like, I know one ex members that's trying to get her sc- school transcripts so she could go to college, and she was you know taught in the community, and they're like weird. They have this like their school they call it the University of Ascension Science and the Physics of Rebellion, which is like the most amazing name. But really, it's like glorified homeschooling, and like they're not learning what they need to like deal with the real world if they should ever get out. And then you have people that are like senior citizens that can't leave because they don't have any money, they haven't don't have a four hundred one k, they're totally like been cut off from their family on the outside for so long. So I mean, this this isn't like a this isn't like a great like noble experiment that's gone wrong this really is like there's a lot of victims a lot of people that joined believing one thing and then by the time they found out the reality of it it was too late fair point um but i i wonder if it's possible to have a group like this that is positive and uh there's a so absolutely there's one in outside of san diego and i can't remember their name right now i actually just trying to look the them up the other day and I couldn't couldn't figure it out but they um there's a group outside San Diego I'll try to put in the show notes that uh has all the trappings of a UFO cult um and made these uh these wonderful movies that are uh recently showed at uh, the Spectacle Theater in New York where I, I used to be involved um and they have a charismatic leader but as far as I can tell there was none of the oppressive cult dynamics it was sure. more of like an artistic commune and everybody was like free to go and come and there was no requirements of, I mean, I'm sure it had some kind of dark side. I mean, you're talking uh, but, about something different. Like, I mean, like don't get hung up on UFO or funny clothes or funny names. Like a cult is, you know, a destructive cult is designed as, or is uh, designated, you know, you go there, you're told one thing, then it becomes another thing. You give up, you don't have any, you you don't have any, you can't really even give consent to like give up all your possessions or give up control of your life because you're not, it's not informed because you were lied to, you know, from the very beginning. You're stuck there. You're worshiping this guy. You know, like that's, that could be a radical political group. That could be a UFO religion. That could be a uh, MLM marketing pyramid scheme. Um, Rick Ross, the, uh, the uh, cult noted cult expert Rick Allen Ross, he said that he he knew of a cult that was like all based around like the, one guy owned a horse and the people would go there and like pet the horse and you know take turns riding the horse and then it became this cult. So I mean it's like you know living communally I think can be great. I think following your bliss whatever whatever however it departs from the mainstream can be great. But you know it has to be built consciously with a. Um, has to be built consciously in a way that is ethical and allows people to have autonomy, individual autonomy. And yeah, you know, so, I mean, I would like to do that, but it's just, you know, but it's like, don't confuse the, the trappings for the, the actual cult. Yeah. And, uh, I was referencing a little bit, this book on the edge political cults of the right and left by, um, Dennis Teresh and Tim Walforth. 
there are two ex-Trotskyists. They're, they're in different Trotskyist groups. And they came out of it with this, uh, this thesis that basically Marxism-Leninism, when done correctly, is a cult. And they give many, many examples, both of like extreme examples and more, you know, like Trotskyist groups that were more benign, um, but mm-hmm. had the same kind of uh, uh, a repression of, of the membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, their conclusion was basically that socialism isn't wrong. Um, you know, fighting for some kind of socialist revolution isn't wrong. Uh, but there has to be an organization that has true democracy that's built from the ground up where people are free to say what they want and criticize leadership. Um, basically, uh, you know, uh, Lenin had this, uh, or the Bolsheviks had this idea of democratic centralism. But um, over time, it became sort of like democratic centralism. Like centralism was really what was emphasized. And they want to emphasize the democratic aspect. Yeah. And I think one of them, if not both of them, used the DSA as an example of a good kind of huh. socialist group. And I think they actually were part of the DSA long before it had this, you know, uh, Trump bump explosion. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a part of the DSA or a part of any group, but I also I also have this thing in the back of my mind that's like, if there was a revolutionary organization that I, I really did agree with their politics, maybe I would join it and become like submissive to the the central leadership or something just because i really do believe in some kind of militancy fortunately no group like that exists (laughs) i'm not actually interested in any of the groups that do exist but i do wonder if that kind of that kind of control that like uh military style control um there is something uh legitimate about it yeah i mean it's uh you know i might have met mentioned this in the email i i I think you know i do think that the charismatic cult um some are destructive some are not i haven't studied non-destructive cults so don't (laughs) ask me about it but like um you know i do think like the, the the charismatic small charismatic group was really i think you know i think it exists for a reason i think it's almost like an evolutionary throwback to like how people organized before nation states um, but I mean, it's just one way of doing things. I think, you know, if, you know, the right people study this stuff and learn the lessons from it, they can figure out how to do it in an ethical way or, or not, you know, or maybe it's not possible, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not like the, I think the main thing that interests me and I think I hope it's the main thing that people take out of this is that it's like this isn't like like normal human beings with like normal drives and psychological makeup whatever normal means you know they're the ones that end up in cults they're not different they're not stupid they're not you know they're not suckers um you know it's it's normal human psychology that either puts you in a cult or puts you in the military or you know puts you in a fantasy football league um, it's just the cult happens to be the most, like, one of the weirdest, most bizarre manifestations of whatever that is. So, like, it's kind of, like, a good way to, like, like get people into, like, listen, like learning about cults and then, like, slip in. Well, actually, this applies to other areas of your life. This is normal human psychology. Yeah, groupthink is, you know, it's incredibly pervasive. Right. 
Yeah, I guess I guess like we have more work to do in, in thinking about this because I think, you know, there's something good about the collectivity and the communitarianism mm-hmm. and the, you know, common project and creativity, but and uh, you know, vision of the future and of change. But obviously something bad about the the group think and blind submission and mm-hmm. um, you know, self policing. So, can- you know, but can, yeah, but I mean, I really they... think it comes from um, deception. I think that when you have a psychopath, and I think, uh, don't sue me, Gabriel, but I think you're a psychopath, um, you know, at the top, who's like hiding information from people and doing the kind of manipulation and the organizing in the most like manipulative way possible, you're going to end up with like a sick organization like this, um, you know, you know, shitty fruit from a rotten tree, to quote uh, Mr. Show. But, like, that's not the, um, you know, it's like it doesn't have to be that way. And who knows, like, the way the future's coming with, like, technology and the environment and the political situation and the, uh, you know, economy possibly collapsing. Like, maybe we'll need resilient, smaller, you know, democratic communities that look an awful lot like cults to... uh, (laughs) to get through it as a as a species but it's not going to be with like autocrats and fascists at the top no matter who they say they're representing god or or the ufos or who they're representing yeah that's what i'm talking about um so i'm going to play you out with a uh, gabriel of riancia song if you think that's a good idea oh absolutely <laughs> you know the story is very like multimedia it's like People don't get it unless they can really hear the the golden throat of Gabriel Fiorancha. So I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. I wonder if the the Mandy guy is a little bit based on him because he also was like a failed pop singer or something like that, right? Oh, I don't know. Have you seen Mandy? No. Uh, it's a a desert cult leader um, who was uh, at one point he plays his his music for Mandy. And uh, she laughs at him, and that's what drives him crazy. Uh, well, I won't, I won't give any more spoilers, but you should certainly see that movie. There's a lot of overlap. Okay, I'm adding it to my cube. December 28, 1973, the crew of the Skylab 4 announced to ground control that they were taking the day off. Before anyone at NASA could argue, they shut off communication. Crew member William Pogue said they spent the rest of the day doing what they had no time to do before, quote, studying the sun, the earth below, and ourselves. There's not a lot of information about what is now known as the Skylab 4 mutiny, aside from a brief account on libcom.org. It details the action taken by three American crew members of the Skylab space station against their highly precise and taxing work regimen of experiments and maintenance, in which they were often forced to forego meals and scheduled breaks. The mission's commander, Gerald Carr, recalled, On the ground, I don't think we would be expected to work a 16-hour day for 85 days, 
and so I really don't see why we should even try to do it up here. One way the story could be read is a standard labor dispute. The workers were being pushed too hard, so they took an unscheduled day off, and NASA was forced to renegotiate their schedule. In another sense, it raises the question of why we go to space at all. What really was the point of Sputnik, or planting a flag on the moon? They, of course, retained a certain sense of human unity and achievement and optimism for the future in the Skylab 4 mutiny, something Pogue later told Science News he learned during the mission. He said it had made him, quote, much more inclined towards humanistic feeling towards other people, other crewmen. I now try to put myself into the human situation instead of trying to operate like a machine. But he only felt this way despite the mission, its purpose to complete experiments and collect data. At this point, humans were only involved because dogs and monkeys could not work as hard, and robots, like the Mars rover, had not yet been invented. Today, although space-age optimism for humanity's future remains popular among much of the world's population, space exploration has become an entirely commercial venture. Last July, a group of NASA officials and tech entrepreneurs celebrated the 50th anniversary of the moon landing at what was called the New Space Conference in Kent Valley near Seattle. With events like the New Space Business Plan and a day-long Space Investment Summit, the meeting was emblematic of what some have called the New Space Age, a return of the tropes of the optimistic golden age of the space race with a neoliberal spin of public-private partnerships and manic financial speculation. Like another famous summit in Seattle, it did not go unopposed. That weekend, there was also the Salish Anti-Space Symposium, or SAS, at an art gallery in Seattle. It was, to my knowledge, the first event that brought together an emerging tendency of new space-age pessimists, who react both to the entrepreneurial designs of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Robert Bigelow, and any kind of optimism that their blueprints could be appropriated for some kind of space communism. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's up in me because Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And is in their zine, Don't Let Them Leave, available in the show notes, the organizers of SAS wrote, quote, As capitalism and imperialism slash nationalism are running out of space to maneuver around their problems and space to put their polemic energies towards conquering, outer space is the only space left for them to exploit. The closer to reality their pie-in-the-sky myths are to being actualized, the more horrifying reality becomes. They continue, Who benefits from space exploration? Certainly not you, certainly not the poor, certainly not the marginalized, certainly not our planet's ecosystems, certainly not any celestial drifting rock that has the misfortune to encounter a colonial envoy. It's the billionaires, the heartless government bureaucrats, the military, and so on, who in the past and present 
push this new manifest destiny, end quote. The anti-space position may seem to some listeners as reactionary. The space race, after all, was not merely a nationalistic and militaristic dick-measuring contest. It also reflected the conception that existed in both liberal and Marxist ideologies, that history was progressing towards resolution to war and strife. It was, after all, reappropriating intercontinental ballistic missile technology that launched Sputnik and subsequent spacecraft, a symbolic gesture of pointing our efforts towards the heavens instead of one another. But if opposition to space travel back then, perhaps best articulated by Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon, seemed reactionary, they seem practically insurrectionary today. With NASA and Roscosmos budget slashed, space features today is purely for profitable enterprises like satellite internet, which threatens to destroy astronomy, asteroid mining, that will only compete with earth mining instead of replacing it, and of course, space tourism and space colonies for billionaires alone. Aaron Bastani's concept of fully automated luxury space communism offers a rare positive vision of how these technologies can be applied, but relies on a global revolution first, i.e., the conception of how we are to use space needs to be radically changed, and until then, we must reject it entirely. But there are other, more philosophical reasons to be skeptical of space exploration. Writing at the dawn of the space age in 1957, Hannah Arendt cautioned that ambitions for the conquest of space was emblematic of a moment where movement towards scientific mastery was outpacing the ability of humans to adequately consider their use of technology. Man, she wrote, insofar as he is a scientist, does not care about his own stature in the universe or about his position on the evolutionary ladder of animal life. The simple fact that physicists split the atom without any hesitations the very moment they knew how to do it, although they realize full well the enormous destructive potentials of their operation, demonstrates that the scientist qua scientist does not even care about the survival of the human race on Earth, for that matter, about the survival of the planet itself, end quote. She went on to invoke Kafka's conception of the Archimedean point, a hypothetical position where an individual could achieve such a mechanical advantage that he could lift the entire world with a simple lever. The attempt to conquer space, she continued, means that man hopes he will be able to journey to the Archimedean point, which he anticipated by sheer force of abstraction and imagination. However, in so doing, he will necessarily lose his advantage. All he can find is the Archimedean point with respect to Earth. But once arrived there, and having acquired his absolute power over his earthly habitat, he would need a new Archimedean point, and so ad infinitum. In other words, man can only get lost in the immensity of the universe, for the only true Archimedean point would be the absolute void behind the universe." End quote. So I'd like to talk about this tension in relation to two major sci-fi films released in the past half year, Ad Astra and Star Wars. So I'll play the trailer for Ad Astra, and after that, there will be a lot of spoilers. Ray, how are you? Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. General. Your uh, profile is certainly very impressive. You've done exceptionally well on all the assessment tests, basic combat, space training. We have something of a highly classified nature to show you. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima Project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? It was my father, sir. 
The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. Uh, no data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Well, Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. My father's alive, sir? We believe so. Roy, the sir. From the trailer, this seems like another Love is the Fifth Dimension kind of space movie, like Contact or Interstellar, in which one isolated protagonist's search for social meaning and parental love is revealed through a journey into space. But Ad Astra turns out to have the exact opposite conclusion. Brad Pitt plays astronaut Roy McBride, whose father, played by Tommy Lee Jones, vanished decades ago near Neptune, along with a space station dedicated to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. In Ad Astra's not-too-distant future society, SETI has become a desperate Hail Mary to resolve the lingering problems we face today. NASA reveals to him that his father is actually alive, but long ago rebelled against his mission, and sends McBride to Mars to transmit a message to him in hopes he will regain contact. Most of the movie is Pitt's mission to Mars, through a startlingly bleak portrayal of what our future in space will be like. Travel between worlds is as expensive and corporate as an intercontinental flight. The lunar base is a glorified airport slash shopping mall, surrounded by mining operations and piracy. Trouble with piracy since September. Some countries have been giving them safe haven. They'll take hostages or go for our rovers. It's like the Wild West out there. It's your first time in the war zone? Three years over the Arctic Circle. All right. And a heck of a lot of Army-Navy games. <laughs> well, I guess that's not much you ever seen, right? Well, look, it's almost a full moon. A large stretch of the far side is real black, so let's suit up. Lunar rover set for departure to the far side launch complex. Look at this. The big blue marble. And Mars is even more miserable. Contrary to what Musk attempts to sell us, it is an uninhabitable world. Its astronauts live in a subterranean TV chamber. They constantly pop benzos and submit to chatbot psychological stress tests. When McBride finally arrives at the station floating around Neptune, he finds his dad passive, decrepit, and unwilling to accept that his comprehensive scans of every theoretically habitable planet in the galaxy has turned up nothing but dead worlds. McBride heads back alone, determined to reject the escapism of space travel and love those around him authentically, now with the knowledge that nothing is coming to save us. What makes Ad Astra remarkable, and also despised by some critics, is it essentially declares the space age a failure, both as a scientific, technological, economic endeavor, or one for spiritual fulfillment. The idea that space is an unexplored solution to our problems separates us from the radical and necessary task of fixing the world in the here and now. The only sci-fi film I can think of with an equal level of pessimism is Tarkovsky's Solaris, based on the Stanislav Lem novel about a cosmonaut studying a telepathic alien world. Instead of making contact, the world sends him a hallucination of his lost love, as if that is what we are looking for in the depths of space. Another common narrative of fiction that runs against an imminent conception of politics are epic struggles between universal forces of good and evil, 
propelling a heroic protagonist towards some kind of messianic or epochal resolution. This, of course, is the concept behind Star Wars, and now that the final film of its third trilogy has been released, we can take a look at the franchise's vision of that resolution. Obviously, there's going to be a lot to say here. The Star Wars canon is impossibly more vast than just nine movies, and I've not read every comic book, EU novel, seen every LEGO Star Wars TV series, or played every video game. But I've noticed a fascinating tendency in Star Wars of metacriticism running against its own epic structure, and a lot of this was present in the last two movies, Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, and Episode Nine. One interesting moment in The Last Jedi was, as far as I can recall, the first question of the Star Wars universe political economy on screen, when the hacker DJ, played by Benicio Del Toro, revealed that battles between the Resistance and the First Order are driven by the same sort of galactic military-industrial complex. Have all the struggles between rebels and empire only been a bloody capitalist scheme? And what does that mean for the two religious cults who produce these wars' heroic protagonists, the Sith and the Jedi? Episode 7 ends with Rey tracking down Luke in self-exile on some distant island world. The title leads us to believe that Luke will train Rey just as Yoda trained him, but that's not so simple. The Luke we find in this trilogy is bitter, ashamed, and has all but renounced the Jedi. In a fit of depression, he sets out to burn the tree library that houses the Jedi sagas. This was complemented by Kylo Ren telling Rey that all the Star Wars were actually meaningless, and that they should join together and put an end to it once and for all. It was a similar offer that Darth Vader made Luke in The Empire Strikes Back, join and rule the galaxy as father and son. She refused, but the film's climax implied the Resistance, reduced to only a couple hundred stranded in a cave, was doomed. The dark side of the Force surrounds the Chancellor. The Jedi Council would have to take control of the Senate in order to secure a peaceful transition. To a dark place, this line of thought will carry us. Great care we must take. Difficult to see. Always emotion is the future. The Last Jedi implied that there could be a break in the cycle of opposing religious cults and aristocratic families that believe they have some destiny to fulfill. But the rise of Skywalker begins with a refreshed tension. Palpatine has reincarnated as if he never died. Snoke, the villain of the sequel trilogy, was merely his puppet, buying time for his army of Sith to build an infinitely more powerful fleet to conquer the galaxy. Each Star Destroyer had the same weapon as the Death Star, allowing him to now hold the entire galaxy hostage for unrivaled power. Kylo Ren was tasked with neutralizing the final threat, Rey. Instead, he decides he needs to turn her to the dark side. In the process, he is one to the light side by remembering the love he has for his father and mother and deciding to complete their work of rebelling against Palpatine's final order. Love, it turns out, is the fifth dimension. The stage is set for a climactic battle on the Sith home planet of Exegor, in which Palpatine, channeling the power of every Sith, faces a dyad of Rey and Ben Solo, formerly Kylo Ren, channeling the power of every Jedi. In space above them, the Resistance and their partisan allies 
Battle of the First Order fleet. But what is this battle really about? How is it relevant to the faded drama between individual Sith and Jedi? It's worth taking a step back here and looking at the political economy of the Star Wars galaxy. Despite its high level of technology, it remains essentially futile, largely organized by planetary kingdoms and warlords and shifting alliances between the reactionary authoritarian empire and bourgeois revolutionary rebels. Each time the rebels are successful in defeating the empire, the Republic reestablishes a diplomatic and business norm democracy until they are beaten back again by the creation of new planet-killing weapons. But what if they defeated the Empire and Sith once and for all? Their universalizing vision is still based on the heroics of the Jedi and the unity of the Force, itself bound up in the feudal order of aristocratic, usually human, bloodlines. So long as the Force remains a cult, available only to a select group of initiates, the collective struggle of the galaxy, then, doesn't really matter compared to the struggle of this handful of heroes and villains, whose actions and struggles themselves do not really matter because they are bound to their destiny by the force that controls their narratives. All the chance meetings, coincidences, repetitions, and plot holes of the Star Wars universe can be explained by this force, which makes Star Wars a work of religious saga or fantasy epic that occurred a long, long time ago, more than some sort of futuristic science fiction thought experiments. To me, the ultimate tension in Star Wars, then, is the ability for characters to break out of their supposed fate, either by rebelling against the hierarchies of Republican Empire or by the overdeterminance of the Force itself. There's a nice indication of this at the end of The Last Jedi when a slave stable boy in the casino town of Canto Bright lifts his broom using the Force and wields it like a lightsaber. The utopian envision implied here is that the lowliest beings can use the Force, even without training. For the most part, however, the rebels are separated from these philosophical and political questions. On the whole, they seem to have no concept of what taking power would mean, but they must do it to vindicate all those rebels who have struggled or died over the generations. Through the sequel trilogy, through the sequel trilogy they meet dozens of characters who instinctively believe the same. The film Rogue One was essentially a tribute to those who sacrificed themselves in a desperate attempt to further the struggle. Rey, however, is a very different sort of hero. Her main characteristic is that she has no character. She is a scavenger digging in the shipwrecks of the original trilogy, invoking the endless merchandising of the Star Wars franchise with little meaning to her other than what she can sell or salvage. Even if she becomes enveloped in the drama, she has no real interest in the vagaries of galactic politics, she only cares about her own personal journey of understanding her origins. Light versus dark is no abstraction for her. It's not a political or even a moral question. It's two sides of her potential self, a choice between sticking with her seemingly doomed friends or the massive militaristic power of the first and final order. When she discovers she is a Palpatine and not a Skywalker, it's only then that she realizes she has a choice to cast off her mold and change history by joining her life force with the Jedis. She gets her power, then, through the Collective, just as the Rebellion is assisted by thousands of partisan friends who heeded their Hail Mary call to defeat the Final Order before their fleet could deploy. In the climax, the Collective and the individual are joined in the dyad of Rey and Ben, and the partisan warfare raging above them. Initially, it is exploited by Palpatine, who sucks their life force dry and uses the energy to attack the partisan fleet. Then Rey is awoken by the voices of dead Jedis, 
telling her to use the Force. She revives, distracting his attack, and takes all the Force lightning onto herself before deflecting it to vaporize Palpatine once and for all, or so we assume. The three now become one. Ben, who pulls himself out of the pit to find Rey dead, he puts his life into hers, making her at last a Skywalker with a gold-yellow lightsaber of Leia, representing a new phase of Jedi. The few remaining rebel characters celebrate in a jungle base somewhere, with no indication of what comes next in this presumably liberated galaxy. It's interesting that a lot of hate for The Rise of Skywalker and the sequel trilogy in general is directed towards Disney, which, despite its cartoonishly friendly face, is its own type of evil empire, with roots in American Nazism and a rapacious business strategy that has, that has made it a near-cinematic monopoly. The sequel trilogy is written in boardrooms by committee, critics say, leading to cringy social justice motifs and other elements that make us all miss the auteur style of George Lucas. This, of course, forgets that the prequel trilogy, which George Lucas had full control over, was perhaps even more hated, and even the original trilogy was criticized for its hokey catchphrases and over-merchandising. These aspects have always been a part of Star Wars, but under Lucas, there was a veneer of resistance to Hollywood corporatism. Like the resistance of the Star Wars Rebels, this was a facade. The galaxy conjured in Lucas's mind did not have a narrative arc bending towards an authentic or satisfying resolution, because the concept of a force guiding history to something better is an illusion. Currently, the only force that flows through the Lucas Ranch, Disney Studios, and the entrepreneurs of the new space age is the self-valorization of capital. Capital encompasses both the progressive bourgeois democracy of the social justice-oriented republic and the fascistic empire. In a search for a singular coherent galactic order, it pushes itself into the crisis of war, in the space between worlds, drawing out a multitude of previously uncommitted forces. This, and not shallow social justice politics, is why the rebels are characterized by a colorful, multi-species multiculturalism in opposition to the uniformity of stormtroopers. The entire galaxy is drawn together by an expanded capitalism's internal conflict. Previously isolated groups of peasants, rogues, Gungans, Mon Calamari, Jawas, and humans come into contact with one another with a shared goal of protecting their homeworlds from the threat of destruction, or through just asserting themselves as protagonists of their own story instead of cogs in the death machine. In one small but remarkable moment in The Rise of Skywalker, Finn encounters a band of former stormtroopers who, like him, mutinied against the First Order. It is in acts of subversion, sabotage, and refusal like these that a new understanding of history, a new narrative, and a new philosophy of the Force can be made. Like the Skylab for a mutiny, it may not change the course of history, but it at least gives us a moment to think, to look at the Earth and the stars, and to reevaluate our own roles in this chaotic and strange universe we have found ourselves within.